Welcome to the Corlin Economics Report, a weekly look at financial and political topics relating to asset-based investing. Guests on this program pay no fees to appear, and guests and hosts disclose any equity interest in companies profiled. Now, the Corlin Economics Report. Hey, everyone. Welcome in to the weekend edition of the KE Report. Corey and Chad here, your host for this weekend's edition. Also, your host on our website, kereport.com, and podcast, The KE Report, on a daily basis covering market moves, company updates, and any key economic data that moves markets, or at least we think is important for investors. On this weekend show, we're going to start off more broad commentary on the macro environment as well as markets. And in the second half of the first hour, move more into resource-focused comments. We're kicking off the show with Peter Bukvar, Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Financial Group, also editor of the book report, which you can find on Substack, which is a very valuable resource for me on a daily basis where Peter breaks down key market moves, key earnings reports, really anything that's important for investors to digest. Peter, I do want to start on the macro front. As I said, with the book report, you really break down all the key data. There can be a lot of data that's thrown at us on a weekly, even monthly basis. What in your eyes has been some of the standout data that investors, especially market participants, need to be aware of? I think what's so unusual about all the economic data are the extraordinary amount of mixed signals we're getting. It's really, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen in the years I've been doing this, seen so many mixed signals and cross currents. You take consumer spending, in the aggregate, the last print was a bit weaker than expected. You have high-end consumer spending doing well on experiences and leisure and hospitality and going to concerts, going out for dinner. But then the lower-income consumer has been very, quote-unquote, choiceful, according to the, uh, the Walmart CFO. You have, in the housing market, the pace of existing home transactions near a 30-year low, but new build doing better. Uh, you have manufacturing around the world that is essentially in a recession uh, and has been for the last year plus, but hopes that we're about to embark on a, a restocking period that would lift manufacturing. Uh, you have an enormous amount of government spending that is also helping to uh, lift GDP growth. But on the other hand, you have trade, global trade, that's somewhat muted part of the slowdown and the spending on goods. So it's just a lot of weird puts and takes that can't just say the economy is good or bad or, or whatever. You really need to, to look at it in a, in a more nuanced way with a lot of these mixed signals. It's very confusing, to be honest. Well, Peter, I know something that you follow very closely is also the bond market and the interest rate yields, the bond yields. And you've noted some of the bond auctions lately, a lot of them not going so well, but recently the seven-year went a little better. What is your take on the bond market and the interest rate market? So we had the end of last year, which saw a big rally in treasuries with the five-year yield going from 5%, which was up from about three and three quarters last summer, and then fell to about three and three quarters, 380 on the rally, and then has since backed up because we know we went into the year 2024 with expectations that the Fed was going to cut as much as six to even seven times, and that's down to now three. So we've seen this rather notable backup in interest rates with the 10-year yield back to around 430-ish and the two-year 
up to 470-ish. And I think it's, it's, it's noteworthy in that it reinforces this higher for longer situation that the, the hopes and dreams of many that we would somehow magically go back to 0% interest rates uh, because inflation would just magically fall quickly and stay at 2%. Uh, I think we're just reminded that this is still uh, a new environment and that while inflation trends may continue to slow as the year progresses, it's not going to be in a straight line. And there's still risks that it can inflect higher again, particularly on the good side, because I expect services inflation to further slow because of of, of it reflecting the reality of, of the rental growth situation. But I think in the big picture, and sorry to sound hyperbolic, but you know, we the, the bubble this time around was in sovereign bonds, and that bear market doesn't just end in two years. Uh, this has a ways to play out, and I still expect now maybe the worst is over on the short end. It's unlikely the Fed or other central banks are going to raise rates, and even Canada may be cutting after their last CPI report sooner rather than later. But I still think long-term interest rates uh, are going to trend higher, and that we're going to retest at some point that five percent level and possibly go through it. And not necessarily for good reason, because as you mentioned about the auctions, you know, there's an extraordinary amount of treasury supply that needs to get digested. And these auctions are a good tell on demand. And while maybe the, the market impact is leading, because it's usually just that particular day of an auction, I still think it's a good tell. And especially with just the extraordinary size of them and that they are continuously getting bigger as the budget deficit in the U.S. Uh, remains rather large. And if we go into an economic recession, these deficits are going to get even substantially bigger. Peter, one thing that I found very interesting is that this year, yes, rates have moved higher. Is that the very tail end of last year? The 10-year was down at about 3.7%, 3.8%. It's moved up to about 4.3% usually, or at least a couple of years ago when we saw rates moving higher, markets were impacted. But it hasn't seemed to hurt the markets. The markets continue to push to or near at least all-time highs. Is it just the market accepting higher for longer is here, but still they need to put their money somewhere and it seems like markets are that preferred choice? It's Well, let's separate out the market because the market too has been very bifurcated. It's really been a big cap market and big cap tech. It's been, been big cap weight loss drug and big infrastructure spend, whether that is helping Caterpillar or, or other type of industrials. So it's not just... NVIDIA. It is other big names, but it's like McDonald's too. It's like mega, mega large names that people are finding comfort in and much less so in anything smaller mid cap where people are more worried about the higher cost of capital and still mediocre economic growth in the aggregate. I mean, you look at the day that the day after NVIDIA reported earnings and the NASDAQ was up 3%, the advanced decline line at that, on that particular day in the NASDAQ was negative, which is kind of shocking to see how separated parts of this market are. And it's interesting, even within you know the big cap tech names, which we used to call the Magnificent Seven, it's really down to the Fab Four. Tesla's out, Apple's out, Google now is is possibly out, as people question their ability to compete against AI, other generative AI sources, and Apple's growth is almost non-existent, and Tesla is dealing with its own now car issues. So we're down to four names 
in terms of that grouping. You know, divergences can last for a while, but it just you just wonder how long this one can go for. Well, Peter, you do a good job in talking to your subscribers about what you see from the earnings calls. You follow a lot of different companies, whether they're in retail or in the service sector and communications and technology. And it's not always such a rosy outlook when they do their guidance for the year to come as what maybe the mainstream financial media is covering. You talked about divergences between some of the mega cap stocks and some of the other stocks. What other patterns or what other information are you seeing in the guidance from the earnings reports that we just saw from Q4 of last year? Well, let's take technology. I mean, obviously, anything connected to AI is still doing well. But I think the the surprising report that we got just recently was Palo Alto Networks in the very hot cybersecurity industry. And what was most interesting is the CEO mentioned spending fatigue in that if you're a company, you're getting overloaded with cyber offerings and you wonder if each incremental spend is you're going to get a return on that investment. That was definitely surprising, and particularly, again, in light of uh, a part of tech that we all know has a large growth rate ahead of it, but uh, maybe we got a little bit ahead of our skis in terms of the, the rate of that growth in cyber. We're just beginning to get a bunch of retail earnings, and you know, I mentioned earlier what the CFO of Walmart said about Choiceful, Home Depot, and Lowe's you know, talked about still a soft do-it-yourself type business and a better professional business. Uh, I'm sure as we get more over the next couple of weeks, uh, the the discounters like TJ Maxx will be doing better than the Nordstrom's just because as people, more people look for value. Uh, Walmart talked about again, I think multiple quarters now, about how more people making more than 100 grand are shopping in their stores. Uh, on the industrial side, if you were have any sort of exposure to infrastructure spend, you're doing fine. Like the aggregate companies, Martin Marriott Materials, Vulcan Materials. If you are benefiting from the building of these manufacturing facilities, building EV batteries and, and chips, you seem to be doing fine. And steel, you know, is a raw material that obviously feeds into that. So uh, there's definitely a lot of positive talk there. But, you know, if you're doing business globally, Europe is essentially in a recession. China slowed down. Japan is technically in a recession. So if you're a big multinational, you know, there, there's a, a challenging macroeconomic environment out there. And, and we heard that from uh, a lot of different companies. So, you know, getting back to you know how we started this, there's just so many cross currents. And unlike I think I've seen in my years doing this. How does this play into currency trading then? And the U.S. dollar continues to hang up uh, in this almost trading range. It has done fairly well this year, but again, it's not breaking out. It's widely in the middle of a trading range since the very beginning of 2023. We do get a lot of data that shows other countries are struggling. The U.S. seems to have some of the better data out there. How are you looking at currencies, the balance there? I, you know, I always think to, to, to slice and dice the currency space also, and not just say, okay, the dollar's up, the dollar's down. I mean, you know, the, 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 you, know you talked about trading range and it feels like that's what we've been in like you take the euro seems like we're in this never-ending 105 to 115 trading range and now we're you know pretty much smack in the middle uh you look at the british pound for example and we've sort of been on this 120 130 trading range and now we're you know just under 127 so called still relatively middle of the range there and the canadian dollar has been seeming like a multi-year trading range against the dollar 140 on the upside, 130 on the downside, and we're 
exactly 135. And it seems like this is this has been going on for years. I mean, I'm just looking at a chart. You can go back five years and the Canadian dollar, you know, has been in with this 130, 135 range. So I think the the you know the incredible rally in the dollar that began in June 2021 when Jay Powell said we're now thinking about taper and QE and then ended in November 2022, just as the Fed was slowing down the pace of their rate increases. You know, we've come a lot. We've come off a, a lot off that, at least the DXY off that November 2022 high. And now, you know, the dollar is just kind of chopping around. But what is interesting is with this uptick in interest rates, you know, the dollar has gotten a little bit of a lift, but, you know, not much of one. And it's actually faltered over the past week, even with just the, the rising rates over the past week. So me, the, the dollar is no great shakes here. And um, if the Fed does cut interest rates this year, even if it's the three that the market is now anticipating, you know, there, there is downside risk here for the dollar because I don't see the upside scenarios for it, to be honest. Well, Peter, let's also talk about gold because when we talk about interest rates, when we talk about the dollar and currencies, a lot of people look at the precious metals and gold in specific uh, it's been hovering for the last really 15 weeks. It's been closing above the 2000 level. That seemed to be a level that was very hard to get to. Now it seems to be a, a level that's very hard to leave to the upside or the downside. How are you looking at gold relative to interest rates and the currencies? Well, considering this move higher in interest rates after the drop late last year, gold trades like a champ, in my opinion. Gold has traded like a champ since the beginning of 2022 in the face of that dollar rally I just mentioned and the most aggressive monetary tightening in 40 years. Um, what doesn't trade like a champ are, of course, the gold miners, which you guys know as well as anybody, but gold itself trades great. Silver trades poorly because I think it's trading more with, with copper and worries about global growth and, and as a monetary metal like gold is. But you, you got to give gold a lot of credit, and we certainly know where that big level of demand is coming from, that being central banks. Uh, the World Gold Council just a few weeks ago talked about the record amount of 2023 central bank buying that was pretty much in line with the record level in 2022. And why should that stop? Especially now that there's, you know, the net, an interesting thing with gold is you know, putting aside how it's going to trade against the dollar or other currencies and, and interest rates. Uh, another big thing is is the, the big debate within the EU and the US is what to do with the 300 billion-ish amount of reserves of Russian central bank reserves that we confiscated, or I should say we froze. <laughs> we haven't confiscated it yet. But the, the, the talk that we could confiscate it and we could use it to rebuild Ukraine, or we could use it as collateral for loans that would then rebuild Korea. I mean, Ukraine. I mean, if we start sort of taking that money, uh, it would give a lot of foreign governments and central banks even more reason to lessen their depends, dependence on U.S. assets and further the purchases of gold. So that would be the, the next thing that I would be watching for because now I don't know even if it happened, how it would end up legally, how long, how drawn out this would be. But, you know, that that's a big thing here in, in, in the eyes of foreigners who are wondering whether their assets can be taken away uh, at, at, at someone else's whim. Peter, as you said, the gold stocks, they're not doing very well. The majors, mid-tiers, juniors, all continuing to struggle. You tend to focus a little bit more on the majors. Why is there just no interest in these major miners when they do report record revenue numbers? Quite depressing, I have to say. And, and I, I wonder, 
you know, why do we torture ourselves um, being in this business? But, you know, I, I, I think, you know, part of it is, you know, it's a lumpy business and subject to unforeseen costs, unforeseen political issues. You know, you take Newmont, for example, where they really disappointed. And, and I, I just think if you have a lot of people that, that, that are generalists, that, that sort of tiptoe their way into the space when they want to play gold. I mean, Druckenmiller's last uh, 13F, he bought Barrick and Newmont. I'm sure he didn't do a deep, deep dive on both companies. He just said, you know what? I want to get long some of these bombed out gold miners. I'm just going to buy the biggest. And then on then fast forward, they report earnings and they miss by a penny or five cents. And, and now all, all the algorithms smash it, even though they're still making plenty of money. Now, Newmont, of course, cut their dividends. So that disappointed people. But, you know, I, I, I think you have people in here thinking that I'm going to own it and gold's above 2000 and these guys are going to be at estimates and I'm just going to ride this sort of momentum. And, you know, it's not that simple uh, when you're when you're dealing with a business that's so unpredictable on the cost side. Now, at some point, if gold continues to stay above 2000 and profit margins remain very wide for these businesses, which I still think they are, and gold even takes another leg higher, which I think it will, you know, then, then you'll, you'll get money back into this group. But um, there's no doubt it's extraordinarily frustrating and um, maddening, to be perfectly honest. Well said, Peter. I think there's probably some frustrated people in the sector, us included, on this call. But when you look at the rest of the commodity sector and a lot of the other metals, you mentioned silver is trading more like copper and that there's concerns about global growth. A lot of people point to China and the health of the Chinese economy or the or the, I guess the lack of health there and their real estate problems and some of the other problems in their stock market. And that's spilling over into how the need for commodity buying from China will affect the whole sector. How are you looking at the rest of the commodity sector in lieu of not just the U.S. growth, not just Europe and Japan, but also China? So no, no doubt, at least on the construction side, uh, you're not going to get the lift in demand for commodities like you once did. But the EV rollout, the, the need for uh, a bigger and more robust electrical grid, not only in China, but in, a, in the whole world, you need a lot of metals for that, particularly copper. And I think that people also don't appreciate the amount of infrastructure spend that is going on in India. It's extraordinary. And that is going to offset, if not already, uh, any slowdown that we see in the demand for industrial metals out of China. India is, I mean, the, the amount of highway build, road build, bridge build that they're doing uh, is unbelievable. I mean, they're reducing a drive from point A from point B from seven hours to two. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on over there. And uh, they're going to be a, a voracious bid under a lot of different commodities for years to come. Peter, one other thing you've been writing about, and I'd love for you to share at least some details on this is other contrarian sectors, other areas that you think could be in for a bit of rotation of capital into? Well, commodities, definitely, particularly the metals, which you know are bombed out. I just got bullish again on uh, agriculture and the fertilizer stocks. I had been long them going into the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and you had this spike because everyone was worried about in what the supply what the supply situation was going to be with Ukraine got out of that position uh, in you know early 2022 
and waited for an opportunity to get back in. And my catalyst was uh, the sharp drop in crop prices, particularly corn and soybeans, which are multi-year lows, and the non-commercial, so spec uh, short position in both corn and soybeans are at a record high. And that's usually a good contrarian indicator uh, to look at the opposite direction. The fertilizers are down sharply. They're down about half from where they were just a couple of years ago on that Russia spike. And um, so that I find attractive. Another area where I think investors can can find a space to, to, to invest in. And also energy, very bullish on energy stocks that um, sort of have done nothing. But oil stays between 75 and 80. These companies are printing money. And uh, there's a lot of shareholder returns that can be had. So I think that that's an area while everyone's focused on AI and NVIDIA. And again, like I said earlier, a lot of the big mega cap stocks, there, there are other places where you can make some money where the fundamentals are pretty good. Well, Peter, just following up on energy, I got to ask you about nat gas. I mean, it has been on a wild ride the last couple of years, surging up to nine to $10 and now below $2 in the mid ones. A lot of people look at you know, oil stocks, but there are some companies that have a pretty big weighting to natural gas, and there's companies that are only natural gas. How are you looking at that side of the energy equation? Great question. With natural gas in the U.S. at a buck sixty, which is astonishing to see. Uh, we know we had a, a relatively mild winter. You know, also of course the recent decision by the Biden administration to sort of trap more natural gas here by not giving out new permits, even though I think that that will be reversed, but. Yeah, it, it is an offset, no doubt, for a lot of the big majors. But a lot of these guys are pretty good at hedging. You don't have too many spot producers, particularly in, in, in natural gas, which is prone to have such extraordinary volatility. But I think that there's going to be a supply response. And we, we heard that from Chesapeake when they reported earnings, uh, that they were laying down rigs. And you're going to hear that a lot uh, with natural gas being so cheap that uh, you're going to see a supply response that could firm up pricing. I, I only see one way up from here in, in natural gas. All right, Peter, we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much for your time. I love reading over the book report on a daily basis. Look, I get a lot of information out of that, trying to make sense of all the data and all the different market news as well as company comments. Again, you can follow Peter on Substack at The Book Report, also Chief Investment Officer at Bleakly Financial Group. Peter, have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you, guys. Always great to chat. Al Corlin's firm, A.B. Corlin & Associates Incorporated, provides consulting services to public companies on matters of regulatory compliance. To find out more, follow the link from www.kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back after this brief timeout.